The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. First, I want to say I love Shades Valley Community Church. I pray for you often. We pray for you in our services often. I love your pastor, Selen Jonathan. I'm jealous of the gray hair in the room. We've been praying for gray hair and no hair at Iron City Church for a while and have, have very little of it, but, uh, but grateful to be able to be here, uh, to be able to stand honored, humble, to be able to stand before you and preach the word this morning. I imagine Jonathan had to go very deep in the bullpen to get to me, but I'm glad all the other guys said no and that I get to, to be able to be here and open the scriptures for you but have a lot of ground to cover in Acts 15. And uh, so I want to begin by us going through this text together. The question we're thinking about this morning is, when is it right to fight? When is it a time to fight, and when is it time to pursue peace? I was talking to my boys on the couch recently, my boys who love to fight, love to wrestle, of when is it time to fight, and when is it not time to fight? It's a difficult question for little boys to wrestle with. It's a difficult question for us to wrestle with. I told them it's right to fight when they need to defend their mom or their sister or anybody else that's being bullied. I told them that God made them strong and smart and they need to use their strength and their smarts to help people and not harm other people. But other times they need to be peacemakers because my kids fight about a lot of stupid stuff, about stuff that doesn't matter. We are prone to fight about things that don't matter. The the scriptures call us often to not be quarrelsome, to fight for peace rather than fighting with one another. The New Testament is very clear that there is times to stand up and fight for truth, and there's times to avoid quarreling about things that don't matter. So how do we discern these things? How do we discern when it's time to fight and when it's time to shut up? Some Christians today fight over anything and everything. Some people are always in battle mode, and when you're always in battle mode, you end up hurting a lot of people. Other Christians, professing Christians, have been so influenced by our culture, they aren't willing to stand up for anything, even the most central truths of the scriptures. Don't faithfully obey Jude 3 that calls us to contend for the faith that's been once for all delivered to the saints. Not willing to fight for the truth of the gospel. So some fight over everything and some won't stand up for anything. Both of these are problems, aren't they? And this text before us, Acts 15, I think helps us discern, again, when is it time to fight and when is it time to pursue peace with one another? The context of Acts 15, we've been going through Acts. Uh, I preached this message just a couple weeks ago. The context of what's going on here is Paul and Barnabas have just finished their first missionary journey. And if you look back in Acts 14... They're they're reporting to their home church at the end of Acts 14. They go back to Antioch and report all the Lord has done. One of the most key verses in the book of Acts is in verse 27, where they report that the Lord has opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, which is a big deal for us in this room, right? I imagine most of us in this room are not ethnically Jewish. So the reason why we're gathered here this morning is because the Lord opened the door of faith for the Gentiles, non-Jewish people to begin to come in. But we see here at the beginning of chapter 15, not everybody's excited that that door's open. We've actually got some people that show up from Jerusalem that are upset that Gentiles are now coming in 
to that door. And they are wanting to close this door or at least be bouncers at the door to be able to say who gets to come in or who doesn't get to come in. So this is the context for us. Let's look at verse 1 together. But some men came down from Judea, which is Jerusalem, and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So these Jews from Jerusalem show up and start telling these new Gentile believers in Jesus that they must be circumcised to be saved from their sins by Jesus. They're not saying that Jesus doesn't save you. They're saying, yes, Jesus, but also circumcision. But also circumcision according to the law of Moses is what equals salvation. And how does Paul and Barnabas respond to this? Look at verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. This is time to fight, right? Luke records, and there's nothing small about this fight. There's nothing small about this debate they have. Often today, I think we think that as long as someone is sincere in their, their beliefs, that it's okay. As long as someone's sincere, truth really doesn't matter as long as somebody's sincere about what they believe. That's not what Paul is setting forth here. Just think about the book of Philippians. There's people, Paul says, in Philippi that are preaching the gospel for wrong motivation. You know what Paul says? Praise God. They may not be sincere in their motives, but at least they're preaching the gospel, right? And then in Galatians, actually Paul writes Galatians after this first missionary journey, so the same people he's encountering here is the people he's dealing with in Galatians. Paul says people are coming, again, with sincere motives. Surely they, they think actually it is Jesus plus circumcision plus keeping the law is what equals salvation. What does Paul say to them? Let them be accursed. He says, actually, they're coming preaching circumcision. I wish they would just emasculate themselves is what Paul says. He says, if, if we or an angel from heaven come preaching another gospel, don't believe it. Again, may they be accursed. Paul comes out swinging when the gospel's at stake. He's ready for a fight when the gospel's at stake. Here we see these folks that are coming and distorting the truth of the gospel. We, we do have to give them a little grace here. The book of Romans hasn't been written yet. Galatians hasn't been written yet. The book of Hebrews, it helps us understand how to piece the Old and New Testament together. This is a time of transition for our church our church is just transition where we meet on Sundays. It's always a little painful when you're in time of transition, right? This is what's going on here. But Paul and Barnabas decide that this debate they're having in Antioch is much bigger, has much bigger implications than just putting out some false teaching fires in Antioch. That they actually need to go back where these guys came from, to Jerusalem, to ground zero, to have this debate and fight there. So that's exactly what they do. Look at end of verse 2. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. Let's stop there for a second. So Paul and Barnabas are on their way to Jerusalem to have a fight, right? To have a fight about the truth of the gospel. But what are they doing on their way there? Did you catch that? They're spreading joy to all the brothers. They're going for a fight, but as they're on their way to the fight, they're testifying to the grace of God and what God's done among the Gentiles and spreading joy to all the brothers. I want to be that kind of Christian, brothers and sisters, that is ready for a fight when the gospel's at stake, but even on my way to that fight, I'm spreading gospel joy 
Only the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit, can produce this kind of gospel grit and grace at the same time, right? They're spreading joy, this 250-mile journey to Jerusalem, but they finally make it. Look at verse 4. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. So they show up at the church of Jerusalem. They share with these apostles, with the elders, with the church, all that God has done on their first missionary journey, how he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. But their opponents are there, maybe a different group of them that were in Antioch, or maybe the same guys beat them back there and are there for this fight. Look at verse 5. But some who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So again, same debate they had back in Antioch, but now they're at ground zero. The church in Jerusalem having this same debate. And what they're arguing is the Gentiles need to become like Jews in order to be saved. And again, surely they're sincere in this, right? I mean, they've read the Old Testament. All of the people of God since Abraham, at least the males have been circumcised, right? This is a part of being marked out for the people of God. But they don't yet understand what Paul will go on to explain in Romans 2, that circumcision now in the new covenant is not about your foreskin, right? It's about your heart, It's about circumcision of the heart is what Paul tells us. That's what a Jew is not one outwardly, but inwardly, Paul says, about the spirit coming and taking out your heart of stone, ripping it out and giving you a heart of flesh. Galatians 3, Paul will go on to explain that a child of Abraham, a son of Abraham is not about who your daddy is. It's not about circumcision anymore. It's about do you believe in the seed of Abraham who is Jesus, right? It's singular, Paul tells us. That's what makes you a part of the people of God now. They understood that Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law, but they didn't understand all the implications of what it meant that he came to fulfill the law. They understood that Jesus was the Jewish Messiah who's come and fulfilled the Hebrew scriptures, the Tanakh, but they didn't understand that he came to be the savior of the world yet. And so these former Pharisees who come to believe in Jesus, which in itself is a miracle, right? This party of the Pharisees that's now following Jesus. Remember what Jesus had to say about the Pharisees in the Gospels? These are people that Jesus held his harshest language for, right? He said they were snakes, vipers, whitewashed tombs that looked good on the outside, but inside were dead. But these people have come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. These guys who had memorized much of the Old Testament, but Jesus said the problem is you search the scriptures, but you've missed me, and if you missed me, you've missed everything. But these folks have come to see Jesus is who he said he is. But they've not yet seen what Jesus coming and fulfilling the law of Moses, how this has implications now for the church. Again, they're teaching Jesus plus circumcision plus law keeping is what equals salvation. But Paul says in Galatians, Jesus plus anything else is another gospel. It's no good news at all, right? So here we see In our day, many people trying to add to Jesus, right? Trying to add things that you've got to do. Say, yes, maybe Jesus, but you've got to do these other things as well. Here we learn from the New Testament. Here we learn from the Jerusalem Council, as Paul will go on to say in Ephesians 2, that it's by grace we've been saved through faith, right? This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one may boast, 
Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. This is what sets Christianity apart from every other religion in the world. You can never be good enough. There's not enough hoops for you to jump through to get to Jesus. You must come to him on his terms, and that is by faith, trusting alone in his grace. But after this debate between Paul and Barnabas and the Pharisee party, nobody's surprised who steps up to the mic first, right? Who steps up to the plate. Peter here, look at verse 6. It says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So Peter, this fisherman, turns into a lawyer here, right? One argument after the other. Peter's referencing back to what God did in Acts chapter 10, which at this point is probably 10 years before how he went and preached the gospel to Gentiles to Cornelius' household. And his first argument here is that God made the choice. If you read Acts 10, it wasn't Peter's choice. Peter didn't want to go. God had to come to Peter three times with this vision of this sheet coming down, a bunch of weird animals telling him to kill and eat over and over again for Peter to finally get it, that he needed to go and preach the gospel to the Gentiles. This was God's choice, not Peter's. It's his first argument here. His second argument is that God has given them the same Holy Spirit that he gave to us. We went and preached the same gospel. They've received the same spirit. God didn't make any distinction. He said there's no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. So who are we to make distinctions where God hasn't made distinctions? That's what Peter is saying here. His third argument, verse 10, Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He's saying here, you're telling these folks they've got to obey the law of Moses? How many of you have ever kept the law of Moses? This is a yoke, a a weight that none of us have been able to bear. A yoke like you'd put on animals, be able to do some work in the fields. A heavy weight on their neck. Our fathers weren't able to bear this. They weren't able to keep the law of Moses. You haven't been able to. So why are you asking these Gentiles to do that is what Peter says here. Nobody has. Paul tells us in Galatians that the law is a tutor, right? And we got a lot of students in here. Ever had tutor, need tutoring before? The law is a tutor. It's a schoolmaster to show us our need for Jesus. That's the purpose of the law. To show us that God is holy and we are not, that we can never live up to God's standards. Remember what Jesus said when he's asked what the greatest commandment was? To love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. I see neighbor as a pastor before you saying, I don't think I've ever done that before. I don't think I've ever loved God with all that's within me before. I'm growing to be able to do that more and more by the grace of God. We don't just need God's grace for our openly rebellious sins. We need his grace for all of life, right? That's God's standard. It's perfection. It's holiness. His law reveals that we're not that and we are in desperate need of his grace. That we've missed the mark with our sin, right? We've all fallen short of God's glory. We are made to be his glorious image bearers and we have sinned against him. We are in need of his grace. 
Paul tells us at the end of Galatians that it's not about circumcision, it's not about uncircumcision, it's about being a new creation through faith in Jesus. That's the demands of God. Which leads to the key verse really here in all of chapter 15, verse 11. This would have been shocking and scandalous to everyone who was there in Jerusalem. It says, but we believe that we Jews will be saved through the grace of God just as they, the Gentiles, will. You would think he would say the opposite, right? That the Gentiles will be saved just like us. But no, Peter says, we're going to be saved just like the Gentiles by faith in Jesus. What brings us together as people is that we all are in need of the grace of God. No culture, no class. Sin does not discriminate against any culture or class, right, or color. All of us have sinned and fallen short. All of us are in desperate need of God's grace. It says, after Peter says this in verse 12, makes this statement, all of the assembly fell silent. Silence here. But instead of dropping the mic, Peter passes it to Paul and Barnabas. And they step up and tell all that God has done. Over the past two chapters in 13 and 14 is their first missionary journey. They recount all that God has done. And again, this Pharisee's party is not excited about what God's done with the Gentiles, right? Think you should have been demanding they be circumcised and obeying the law of Moses. You just preached grace to them. You should have also been telling them about this. And Paul and Barnabas say, hey, we got our receipts, folks. God showed up and did miraculous things as we're preaching the gospel. Miraculous things he did validating our claims. You ever been to Sam's Club before and they check your receipts on the way out? That's what Paul's saying here. God has validated what we've done by doing miraculous things in our midst as we preach the gospels, as the gospel is going forth and bearing fruit among the Gentiles now. So Peter stands up and tells him about what God did 10 years ago. Paul and Barnabas say, hey, we just got back. God is still doing this in the present among the Gentiles. But then lastly, James, who's probably the biggest dog in the Jerusalem church at this point, stands up, the closer coming out of the bullpen here at the end, and talks about what God is going to do in the future through the Gentiles. Look at verse 13. And they finished speaking. James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, who's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name. And when the words of the, po- the prophets agreed, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, only language used of Israel in the Old Covenant, all the Gentiles that are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes all these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So James could have started anywhere. Again, he could have started back in Genesis in the beginning and showed how through Abraham, the plan from the beginning was for God to bless the nations through his seed, through his offspring for all the nations of the earth to be blessed, but he chooses this obscure quotation from Amos, right? And he says, hey, this has been God's plan from of old, is what Amos says. For the Gentiles who were called by my name to be brought in. He mentions David here, saying, hey, now King David's greater son is on the throne. And now that David's greater son, Jesus, is on the throne, all the nations are now going to be flocking to Jesus. So James' conclusion here is, stop troubling these Gentiles. 
as Peter says, don't, don't put a weight, don't put a yoke on them that you yourselves couldn't lift, couldn't bear. So all three of these folks, or all three of these speeches here, with Peter and Paul and Barnabas and James, all affirming what we would affirm today as Protestants, right? That salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But right after these affirmations, it seems like James may be trying to sneak salvation by works through the back door. Did y'all catch that at the end of Jonathan reading it? Look at this. We'll start back at verse 19 for context. Therefore, my judgment is that we should stop troubling those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and for what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So what's going on here? So right after saying that salvation's by grace, we shouldn't trouble these folks anymore, it seems like James is troubling them with some things, right? He's asking them to do some things here. So what, what, what is going on? Especially with this, like, abstaining from sh- things that are strangled and from blood. I, th- I think a couple things are going on here. First, he's affirming that in order to follow Jesus, you don't have to be a Jew, but you can't be a pagan anymore, Right? All four of these things that are asked are associations with paganism. So he's saying, okay, you, you don't have to be a Jew, but stop acting like a pagan if you're going to follow Jesus. But secondly here, I think especially these things, these last two things, dealing with things that are strangled and with blood, he's asking these folks to give up things that are going to prevent them from having table fellowship, coming around the table with brothers and sisters who are different than them coming around the table from, with their new Jewish family. We know from Acts 10 that there's nothing wrong with a rare steak or barbecue, right? God made that very clear to Peter, praise God, that we're in the new covenant, right? But if I have my vegan neighbors over for dinner, I'm not going to have steak or barbecue, right? If I have my Muslim neighbor over for dinner, I'm not going to serve up some pork, right? We, we need to be understanding with who's around our table. And the context for Acts is that early Christians did a lot of eating together. They fellowshiped around the table together. But the thing is, for hundreds of years, Jews and Gentiles did not eat together, right? This is a new thing that we see going on here. But now that these folks are in Jesus, the table represents their unity in Jesus. So what James is saying here is give up whatever you've got to give up to be able to come to the table with your brothers and sisters. That what is your unity in Jesus and being around the same table together is much more important than what's on your plate. Who's around your table is much more important than what's on your plate to eat that night. So he's asking them to make these concessions for the sake of their brothers and sisters. One of the ways that sin has affected all of us, the fall has affected all of us, is that we are naturally fearful and even despise people and things that are different than us, don't we? None of us are immune to prejudice, brothers and sisters. But hear this. If you are a follower of Jesus, no prejudice in your heart is safe if Jesus is Lord. None of them. He will deal with all of them. He will call us to repent of all of them. So much 
of our debating past one another, misunderstanding of one another, could be overcome if we would just sit at the table together and humbly listen and learn from one another. One of the best ways to deal with and die to your prejudices is to pick up a plate and sit across the table from someone different than you. One of the things I hate most as a pastor, as a white pastor in Birmingham, is to hear my white brothers and sisters dismissing the experiences of their black and brown brothers and sisters in America. Part of the problem is that we often don't get close enough to our brothers and sisters who are different than us to understand their pain, to see and feel their pain. So this summer, I'm, I'm different than my wife in so many ways, not just that we're male and female. But this summer, my wife came into our room getting ready for bed. I was outside the covers because I was burning up reading Summer, we have a really old house, poorly insulated, so our power bills are terrible. I was there in the bed, uncovered, reading. My wife comes in and turns off our fan and runs and gets into the bed and gets under the covers. And I say, what in the world are you doing? She said, I'm freezing. I was angry. I said, Free? what are you talking? I'm burning up. We're in the same house. We're in the same room. There's no way you can be freezing. You know what happened? She put her, freeze, her feet on me and they were freezing. It took me being close enough in proximity to my wife to understand, hey, we may be in the same place, may be in the same room, but we may be having completely different experiences here. It takes proximity often to overcome our prejudices. We need to be able to sit down around a table and talk. And allow our unity in Jesus to overcome whatever differences we may have with one another. Let me tell you a story from the Bible. Galatians chapter 2. Sometime in this time frame, Peter shows up in Antioch. And he's having table fellowship with Gentiles. But then these folks, this Pharisee party, this circumcision party, they show up in Antioch. And you remember what, what Peter does? He withdraws from eating with Gentiles, with his Gentile brothers and sisters. And Paul, who is a little dog in the church at this point, publicly confronts Peter, who's one of the biggest dogs in the church at this point. You remember what Paul says to him in Galatians 2? He confronted him to his face because his actions were out of step with the gospel. Out of step with the gospel. That's what Paul says. So don't let anyone ever tell you that prejudice and racism is not a gospel issue. It is, brothers and sisters. It is out of step with the gospel to not be living in unity with your brothers and sisters. There's a prominent white pastor in our country that I've had much respect for. I think he's done a lot of great things. He was asked a few years ago of how he deals with racism in his church, and he said, I just preach the gospel and racism goes away, just disappears. I'll say, if, if you're white, it may feel like that. But again, ask your black and brown brothers and sisters if that's your experience here. Peter's prejudice didn't just disappear. And if apostles' prejudice didn't just disappear, yours probably isn't either. You need the gospel to daily confront whatever prejudices may be in your heart so that you can experience the unity around the table 
with those that maybe once were your enemies or those that the world says you should have nothing to do with. You know, that's what the gospel does. It takes folks who are enemies and makes them a part of the same family. That's what God has done for you in Jesus. You who once were his enemy, once a sinner, you've been brought near, you've been, you were an orphan, now you're a child, you're an enemy, now you are a part of the family. But also the gospel reconciles us to one another. There's a lot of talk of building walls in our days, right? Walls have a purpose. It's for division, for separation. Remember what Paul says in Ephesians 2? The wall is down. The dividing wall, if I steal you, the divided Jew and Gentile, which honestly was probably a deeper divide than black and white even in Birmingham, that that wall of division is down through the cross. The problem with our sin is that we often want to reconstruct walls of division that Jesus has already taken down. We want to shut doors that Jesus has already opened. We must live like the gospel is true. You have been reconciled in Jesus to every other follower of Jesus. That's true of you positionally right now. In Jesus, you are united to God. You are one with him in Jesus. And you're one with all of his people. The problem is we don't practically live like that's true so often, right? We must allow what we believe and know to be true to be fleshed out in our lives. The apostles in Acts 15 are saying, stop rebuilding the walls of division. Stop trying to close the doors that Jesus has opened. So they send a letter back to Antioch, recounting all the things that we heard Hafes read earlier, all the things they decided in this Jerusalem council. And verse 31 says, this church is full of both Jews and Gentiles rejoiced when they heard this. And I'm sure the, the lady Gentiles are happy, but especially the men, right? It's like you can put up those knives. We don't have to talk about circumcision anymore. There's rejoicing that happens because the gospel, the grace of Jesus is what unites them together, right? We, we've got to remember that this first church council here in Acts 15 not called to deal with the Trinity or the hypostatic union, called to deal with justification and racial division in the church. These are important issues for us, right? Of what are the things we fight over and what are the things we pursue peace in? And the result for us, again, this rejoicing in verse 31 should be very encouraging for us, right? Especially in Birmingham, Alabama. There, there can be unity around the gospel here. But an interesting thing happens at the end of this chapter. After all of this talk of unity in the gospel, look at the end of this chapter. You just look at the subheading there at the end. What does it say? Paul and Barnabas separate. There's a separation, a division that happens at the end of Acts 15. They separate because John Mark, who went out with them, this young believer on their first missionary journey, when things got hard, when they were being opposed, John Mark couldn't handle the heat. He left them. He abandoned them. And gracious Barnabas, who wants to take John Mark back out with them on their second missionary journey, and Paul says, no way. This kid abandoned us. I'm not taking him back out there again. 
It says here they had a sharp disagreement in verse 39, which leads to a separation. But the interesting thing here for us, Luke does not tell us who was right. They separate here, which is not a good thing for brothers to divide with one another. The Lord works it for good in the ways only the Lord can, where the gospel goes forth in different places. But they've been uniting the gospel. They've been partners in the gospel and getting a lot of trouble together for preaching the gospel, Paul and Barnabas. And now they're separating over this, which is not a good thing. We don't know who is right in this. But it made me think about the division, again, that has existed in our country, really from the beginning, especially between black and white in America, right? And unlike Paul and Barnabas, it is very clear who was wrong in our history. 1787, Richard Allen and Absalom Jones were members of this Methodist church in Philadelphia. They're there, they come in one Sunday, they're told they have to sit in a separate section in the worship gathering. They're told they have to come to the Lord's table at a different time than everybody else. Absalom Jones is on his knees during the time of prayer and he is yanked up off of his knees and told he can't pray there. So Absalom Jones, Richard Allen go and form the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, the first black denomination in America. And since then, the black church has played a crucial role in American society, a needed role in American society. It's very clear who was wrong in the beginning, right? Obvious, as another pastor in Philadelphia, present-day pastor Eric Mason said, the reason why the black churches exist is because the white church decided to be the white church and not the church. Division has existed in our country since its inception. Division has existed in our city since its inception. And our white parents, grandparents, great-grandparents were out of step with the gospel for this being the case. We need to realize that the apostles intentionally did not plant Jewish churches over here and Gentile churches over here. And there's a reason for that. Because it lies about the gospel, right? The Bible demands that we think about unity across all different lines, sinful lines of division. The Bible demands it, but also Birmingham demands it, doesn't it, brothers and sisters? If you know our story, if you know our history, we we are not... Churches and Christians in a vacuum. We are in a city. We're in a city that is known around the world as Birmingham. that's known around the world for our racial division and strife. If, if we're going to faithfully preach the gospel in our city, we must deal with the sins of our city from the past and in the present. Thankfully, in our city, some things have changed. Thankfully, Jim Crow is dead but his ghost still haunts the streets of our city every day. We are not going to eradicate racism in our city. But I firmly believe, brothers and sisters, that churches can stop being a part of the problem and start being part of the solutions. That we can be what Jesus is called to be, and that's a city on a hill in the midst of the darkness. Light in the midst of darkness. The light shines all the brighter in the midst of darkness, doesn't it? So Dr. King says that the the stars only shine at night. You only shoot fireworks at night, right? 
I live in Southside. We, we've just started meeting at Ramsey High School. There's a, a club called V Club on this mountain that has literally divided our city since integration. And I have a love-hate relationship with uh, this club, partly because it seems like every weekend after I put my kids in bed, huge firework shows happen. It sounds like a war zone outside of my house, and tears and gnashing of teeth happen every, every weekend. It's these rich people trying to outdo one another with, with their firework shows. But you go outside, and it's beautiful, right? The color displayed amidst the darkness of night. My prayer for us, brothers and sisters, is that the church in Birmingham, our churches, can begin to be a beautiful display of color and light in the city that is filled with darkness and division. And only Jesus can do that, brothers and sisters. Only the gospel of grace can bring that kind of unity. In Paul's last letter, right before he is killed in 2 Timothy 4, one of the last things he asks Timothy is to bring John Mark with him. To bring John Mark, he said, he is very useful to me. You know, we, don't, we don't know what all happens, but it's obvious that there was reconciliation that happened, right, between Paul and John Mark. Brothers and sisters, we need one another. We all have individually our blind spots, right? There, there are things that I can't see when they're stuck in my beard that other people can see. I need your help. I need other people to point those things out. But also cultures have their blind spots, right? One of the beautiful things about living in community across different cultural lines is that we have different blind spots. And we get to help one another in grace and love see those things and pursue Christ-likeness together. We are missing the beautiful diversity of Jesus' kingdom if we are not united, if we're not together. And know that gospel unity isn't calling for uniformity, isn't calling for assimilation, but it's called for unity in diversity. And hear me, when we let our differences divide us in the city of Birmingham, we are lying about the gospel and what Jesus' gospel does in the world. When we as different churches see each other as competition rather than co-laborers, we are lying about the gospel. So let's not lie any longer, brothers and sisters. I know y'all just finished the Gospel of John. Hafes told me this week y'all spent like 18 years in the Gospel of John. <laughs> in John 17, we see Jesus pray for unity in his church. One of the last things that's on his heart before going to the cross, that his church would be unified. Jesus prayed for it, and he even died for it, brothers and sisters. So the call for us, yes, we must pray, but we also must die to ourselves. Die to whatever we've got to die to in order to have unity in Jesus' church. There's a time to fight and there's a time for peace. And we pray the Lord give us grace to faithfully pursue both in the light of his word. Would you pray with me? Father, we need your grace for all things. We need Jesus for all things. We thank you that Jesus has come, that he has finished the work of salvation that he has ascended to your right hand and sat down because the work is completed and now sent his spirit into the world and now the gospel is going forth and bearing fruit in all the world. 
We thank you that gospel has come here to Birmingham, Alabama, and there are faithful churches that are faithfully preaching the gospel in the city. I ask by your grace that you would help us to more faithfully live like the gospel is true, to be unified with one another across different lines of division in our city. Father, I pray that the turf wars that have existed between church and the city would be done away with and that we would link arms together for the advancement of the gospel in Birmingham and to the ends of the earth. Father, we know that only you can produce what we desire to see happen in our city. Only you can produce by the finished work of Jesus and by your spirit what we long to see happen. So we ask that you would move and work and use us as means to that end. Help us to faithfully preach a gospel of justification by faith alone in Jesus, but how that also has implications for all of our lives together. Help us to love Jesus more than we love other things. Help us to love one another more than we love temporary things that are passing away. Again, we need your work of grace in our lives to produce this kind of fruit within us, to know when is it time to fight and when is it time to pursue peace. We pray you do this work in us by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.